Hello and welcome to the Gladstones Land podcast from the National Trust for Scotland. Episode 10, Tea and Tranquility in Georgian Edinburgh. Hello, good morning everybody and welcome again to the Gladstones Land podcast. It's great to have you here listening and it's great to be here recording again in uh, Gladstone's land. Mm-hmm. I'm here, I'm Thomas, and I'm, I'm, <laughs> and I was going to say, and I'm here with Kate. <laughs> and we're delighted to have you back again. How are you doing? Good. I'm excited about all of the tea we're going to be drinking this episode because I have been promised tea. Yes, that's absolutely right. Today, as you will have heard, uh, the episode is about tea drinking. A which, subject very close to my own heart. Yes, and indeed mine. I think we've, we've probably definitely talked about drinking tea on the podcast mm-hmm. before. Um, I think actually that in many ways goes to the heart of why this is an important episode. Um, tea drinking is such an important part of British life today. <laughs> and it's Nothing during, a cup of tea doesn't fix. And it's during this period, uh, the period that we deal with, that tea first started to be drunk in Britain. And so it's a really important cultural phenomenon and also delicious. So <laughs> we're going to be talking about that. Uh, to start us off, I've got a clip from uh, from the tour. Uh, this is Evelyn, one of our tour guides. So let's just have a quick listen to that. Now, in here, time has moved on. You can see things are very different. You could all, almost live in this room today. We now have fully glazed windows, so the room is that little bit warmer. They have panelled the walls and they think they may have even pushed sheep's wool behind that panelling to insulate the room. So the room is really quite a comfortable place. They would have used this room for entertaining. So they had lovely things like the buffet cupboard over there with the china that's now coming from England and Holland. So it's that bit cheaper than it would have been coming all the way from China. So they're using that to display and also to eat and drink out of as well. The cupboard, the buffet cupboard, has got a table and they would have served little snacks and so on there. And then people would come and they would indulge in the big craze at the time, which was tea drinking. So the lady here would have her box with her different teas inside and there's a bowl for mixing the the teas together and she would produce her own blend of tea and then the people who came to visit would be able to taste her tea and perhaps little cakes and so on that she could provide. That was a section from Evelyn's tour uh, in the in the green room. The green room, the Georgian room. Both are fine. Both are fine. It is the uh, the Georgian period room and it is uh, it has green, green, in gr- colour. green in colour, so there you go. <laughs> our, our guest this week on the podcast is Anna Brierton, who we heard on the first episode. She's the visitor services manager, but also she supervises our tea ceremonies. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to get onto that in a minute. Just before we start, I've got a few tea facts. <laughs> uh, I cannot wait. Uh, apparently, the earliest reference to tea by a Briton was in 1615 when a Mr. Wickham, the East India Company's agent in Japan, uh, wrote to his colleague in Macau asking for uh, him to send some tea on to him. So by that stage that he'd obviously been in Macau and drunk tea. Uh, It was first sold in Britain uh, just before the Restoration in 1657 
but after hot chocolate and coffee, both of those things have been in uh, in Britain longer than tea. Uh, it was initially a medicinal drink, uh, and it, it really took off in the 1660s and 1670s due to the influence of Catherine of Braganza, the wife of King Charles II. She was Portuguese. Um, Portugal had uh, had an East India connection a lot longer because Portuguese, the, Portugal had run uh, Goa and Macau for a few centuries already by that stage. And so she brought it in. Uh, it became an essential part of aristocratic life and uh, and then it, it, it filtered down uh, to the lower classes that way. And that's... Uh, that's that's bringing it into into England. Tea was first drunk in Scotland, apparently, uh, also during the reign of Charles II. But it was when his brother James II, um, or, or his brother who was to become James II, lived in Edinburgh. Um, he was apparently the regent in Scotland during the reign of Charles II, and he and his wife held court at Holyrood. Uh, we heard about James II in last week's episode about the Jacobites, and it was his wife, Mary of Modena, um, who introduced tea into uh, Scotland in the 1670s and 1680s. So there you go. Some some tea facts. Um, <laughs> Which I guess lead us nicely into our interview with Anna. Delighted to welcome back Anna, the visitor services manager and and our resident tea expert, to uh, to take us through the Georgian tea ceremony, one of the uh, uh, one of the exciting bonus attractions that Gladstone's Land offers to visiting tourists. So welcome back, Anna. Thank you, Thomas. It's lovely to be back. I'm just going to sort of talk about some of the history of tea today um, and look at the few different types of tea that kind of coincide with its progression through time. Mm. And we are also drinking fabulous loose leaf tea while we do this. Yes, of course. I, um, and I, listeners would expect nothing less. <laughs> in, in China teacups. <laughs> um, so yeah, do you want to, I guess, jump in and tell us a little bit about some of the history of tea and how it relates to what we do here and the history here? Yeah, absolutely. Basically, tea kind of reached its zenith of popularity during the 18th century. And uh, obviously, it's still incredibly popular today. Um, 165 million cups of tea are consumed every year in the UK. Goodness. Um, so that is... Sorry, every day in the UK. Every day. Oh, every 165 day. million. 165 million cups of tea. So that's... Everyone has two or three, at least. I mean, I... I make up for a lot of that. Yes. I think you do too. Yes, I'm very fond of tea. So for every child that doesn't have any, Kate's having five. <laughs> um, and I, I, I have read that it, I think in the late 18th century, it surpassed coffee, beer, gin and other drinks as the most popular drink. And it, it still retains that title. Yeah, I think part of that was um, in sort of around 1720, it's, it became more affordable for mm-hmm. people, uh, whereas coffee still retained um, its taxes and it was quite expensive. Whereas tea started filtering down from the upper classes and became a, a much more affordable commodity, really. Egalitarian. Um, egalitarian tea. I like that idea. <laughs> mm. Very much the, the working man and woman's drink, as well as 
a uh, uh, the posh drink as well. Exactly, yeah. And um, it's uh, of course there are many different kinds of tea, aren't there? Um, mm. And we we tend to tend to think of a, a fairly standard black tea as being the the common drink. Mm. You know, that's what when you, when you go to a, a tea shop today and you or indeed anywhere, frankly, when you go today and you ask for a cup tea. of tea, you are wanting what is sometimes labelled English the breakfast, breakfast tea. Blend. The breakfast yeah. blend. But that's, um, that's not it. And actually, uh, in the early days, there was a lot more variety in different kinds of tea that were drank. Is that correct? Yeah, so I, when it first came over to Europe and sort of the several thousand years before then that it was in China and Japan and all over sort of Asia um, green tea was actually more popular um, it was much more um, accessible it was more widely produced and it wasn't until the mid 19th century that you start to get an influx of black tea really? and that starts as to become more popular And you were saying that green tea was what people drank in Britain in the 18th century, pretty much. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and even in the 17th century as well, it sort of first comes over in the mid-17th century. And it was really only um, drank by sort of the very highest echelons of society. Um, and it filtered down from there to some of the sort of slightly less wealthy people um but we're still talking as of a high aristocracy um and then as i say mid 18th century it starts to become a much more popular drink mm-hmm. um and you get that constantly across any kind of fashion in that um throughout the classes there is that kind of mimicking and people wanting to to mimic different classes um and uh, in this case it was the lower classes wanting to mimic the upper classes but then of course you get that um in reverse in other situations mm-hmm. so you have um the tea started to come in to uh, to england i suppose um and it was drunk it was very expensive so it was drunk primarily by the aristocracy and then it became more and more popular so it was imported in larger amounts so it became cheaper and then the yeah. middle classes were able to aspire to it. Yeah, it's suggested that um, sort of the importation of tea uh, coincides with uh, importing sort of textiles from China and other countries in Asia um, and that when um, an act of parliament banned the importation of finished textiles from Asia uh, that the merchants switched their attentions to tea mm. and started importing that instead um, and uh, so that kind of contributes to that influx in popularity but it also contributes to uh, the amount of tea that was available um, and uh, the ability for the cost to remain fairly low mm. And it does also get tied up with the Enlightenment, doesn't it? It's seen as sort of the, the drink of rationality as opposed mm. to something like wine, which befuddles the senses. So, so tea sort of ties in with the cultural movement yeah. that's going on in the 18th century Yeah, very well. much the tea and coffee. You get the same thing. And so mm. coffee houses, perhaps more so than tea, um, were, you know, areas of social interchange, I ex- um exchanging ideas um and they do often say don't they coffee houses were the birthplace Mm. of the enlightenment i have heard i think on the on the tour here actually that coffee was drunk uh, outside the house in these coffee houses and Mm -hmm. more predominantly by men 
and tea was drank in the home more predominantly by women. Is is does that? Um, I think that, that would correct? be a, a relatively fair assessment. Yeah. And so uh, one, in fact, it's one of the really prominent features of the tour when we move to the Georgian room. Um, as we mentioned a little earlier on the uh, on this episode, we move into the Georgian room, uh, and you're moving time periods, moving mm. from the uh, so the um, Sir James Crichton. Uh, early 17th century era into the 18th century um, the the decor is different and the tour guide uh, brings the tour over to a, a table where different teas are laid mm. out don't they? and they say this is something that uh, ladies would would do they would invite people round for, for for tea yeah yeah definitely I, I mean it it was certainly sort of the early 18th century. It was still quite expensive. So um, it would have been a social thing, inviting people round, inviting your close friends round and having um, and having a fairly expensive um, item and just enjoying a social chit-chat, maybe exchanging some gossip. Um, kind of the, the sort of 18th century version of a girl's night out I suppose. <laughs> so talk us through it then you um you have the the hostess and her friends sitting around uh, uh a table I presume yeah and she would be so because tea was expensive she would be in charge she would hold the keys to the tea caddy um you wouldn't want any of the servants trying to steal any um and um so it would be her kind of domain in mm-hmm. the house and um she would uh, she would pour the tea for her friends as well. Um, and what we've done with the tea ceremony is, is we've just kind of introduced the history of the tea into it. So it's like having a nice, relatively relaxed tea party. Um, and instead of talking about gossip, we talk about the history of the tea. Um, although gossip is always actively encouraged. So. <laughs> Positively welcomed in this space. And I suppose I imagine within uh, such a small city as Edinburgh, most people must have known each other, particularly in the, I suppose, the tea-drinking, chattering classes. Yeah, yeah, small. I think it must have been pretty small. I mean, you know, most people moving over to the new town by the late 18th century and... You would have had, you know, neighbours very, very closely related. And I imagine you'd have had a lot of intermarriage as well between families. Um, so, you know, even down to sort of relations as well as friends. Um, so it would have been quite a nice um, convivial community to live in. And there is an element of... Um not just gossip, but also certainly some conversation becomes a lot more important in, in the Georgian period. There's much greater emphasis on it. Um, and actually, some of these sort of get-togethers actually becoming the birthplace for things like the Blue Stockings, mm. who then went on to, you know, have these soirees of literary criticism and advocate for female education. Yeah, And so actually, in a way, they are almost a birthplace of sort of very early women's sort of liberation. And yeah, change, yeah, absolutely. Which is really exciting as mm. well. We've heard a little bit about um, green tea coming in mm-hmm. and that being some of the first tea that, that's being drunk. Um, when do you, some of the later blends come in? When do people switch over to, to sort of black tea? And, and what do we know in terms of, of what they're drinking maybe a little bit later? Okay. Um, so in uh, in the 17th century, one of the tea blends, that were, teas that were introduced uh, was the Latsang Souchon, uh, which is the uh, very smoky mm-hmm. tea that you get. Um, and uh, that came over from China. And um, it was um, 
its smoky flavour comes from the way that they um, they, they dry the tea leaves over um, over pine wood, mm. and uh, that speeds up the drying process, and uh, it sort of makes tea production much 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 quicker. Um, and so that was one of the blends that started coming in in the 18th century, um, and certainly made its way over. Um, in in 1760, there were 62,900 pounds shipped to Britain from China by the East India Company. So it's a, rather a lot of tea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then um, in the 19th century, you start to get Earl Grey coming in, um, which is a blend of different black teas. Um, it's obviously got the bergamot and um, added to it as well, which is, is similar to um, it's a kind of citrus fruit. Mm-hmm. And um, the... It's quite difficult with El Grey tea because the history of it is, is kind of quite lost in the most part. So um, what you get uh, from most uh, most versions of the history, it, what they tend to agree on is that it was um, it started off as like an adulterated tea. Um, so the bergamot oil was added to um, to sort of divert attention away from the fact that maybe the tea leaves had been reused mm. or they weren't using quite as many tea leaves um, and then it became quite a popular uh, tea blend and um, it's not until the 1830s 1840s 1850s um, that we start to get uh, Assam tea mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the most famous ones today mm-hmm. it's a constituent part of English breakfast and uh, that comes um, that comes from India uh, from the Assam region and um, that comes about because um, it was actually a Scottish man that discovered it and um, he um, he and his brother brought it to the attention of the East India Company and the East India Company was like great another another uh, sort of massive region of tea that we can capitalize on uh, they brought it over to London, trialled it out. It was very, very popular. And um, so the East India Company actually um, sort of colonised that area, um, took up a lot of what they termed wasteland and turned it into tea plantations. Mm-hmm. And that's when you start to get the influx of, uh, of that particular kind of black tea that we're most familiar with today. And I suppose one of the benefits of India as opposed to China from the East India Company's point of view is that uh, Britain has a lot more control in India than it did in, mm-hmm. in China. Absolutely, the, yeah. The Chinese state was much more centralised and so much more able to uh, keep foreign merchants out whereas in in india by that stage britain had already started to to conquer territory and so they Mm. were able to control the land much more easily so you mentioned that tea was adulterated Mm. um now i imagine given its high price so it's high because of both sort of the import fees and the the associated with that but also because it's it's taxed very heavily is that right so i assume that there were issues with adulteration maybe with smuggling is is that correct yeah in both cases so um they had um they had a few really weird different ways of adulterating tea in the 18th century um one of them was mixing a combination of elder hawthorn and ash leaf um into uh tea leaves um and they sometimes just drank those leaves on their own as well and it was called british tea mm. um and it became so so popular um 
that uh, they had to pass an act of parliament in 1725 um, to um, to stop uh, mixing tea with anything else. Obviously, it's still carried on after that, but it was illegal. Um, and then in 1777, they had to ban the production of British tea because they were worried about its effect on some deforestation. <laughs> you, you really um, don't think of tea as something hugely political, uh, mm. do you? But I suppose at that time, when the East India Company was such an important arm of the British state and that one of their major um, sources of revenue was the import mm. of tea from India and China. It was in the interests of the British state, the British government, to support the East India Company. And yeah. so it became incredibly political from that. Yeah, I think so. Um, and then with, with the East India Company as well, I mean, yes, they bought it in for tax purposes, but each um, each officer... Uh, was allowed a certain amount of cargo space to bring back things for their own personal use. Obviously, this mm. was incredibly abused. Um, and so they were they actually smuggling as well as importing. Um, so you get this really bizarre mix of, um, of sort of um, illegal and legal practices. Um, American listeners... And many other listeners, I suppose, also will have heard of the Boston Tea Party, mm-hmm. which of course. is a, a real prime example of the... Wasting all that tea. Uh, the... <laughs> but also how political. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, of the political nature of the tea, because that's all to do with tax. It, the, the simplified mm. version of the story is often that Britain raised taxes on tea, so yeah. the Americans protested that. In fact, what they had done was remove the taxes, the import duties on tea, for the East India Company. So that made East India Company tea cheaper than the smuggled tea that American smugglers were bringing in. So what the Americans objected to was not that their tea was more expensive, but that it was putting local smugglers out of business. (laughs) And so... um, so that that is a, a prime example, really, of how Britain's support for the East India Company caused such political uproar. Um, and another, just speaking about the, the politics of tea drinking, mm. I suppose we should probably talk about sugar too. Um, do you know? Do you know when people started drinking sugar in their tea? I'm not 100 percent sure, to be honest. But I mean, it was sugar was incredibly popular as far back as. Uh, you know, it's as soon as we started importing it, it became mm-hmm. a popular substance. Um, and then we don't start sort of producing our own sugar in the UK until much, much later on. Um, and Scotland in particular, um, they they own twenty percent of um, of the UK slaves. Um, mm. So a huge, huge quantity per capita. Um, per per sort of person, it's incredible. That's why I was saying that it was political because, mm. of course, I mean, tea tea is grown in India and China, um, by, it, so it's not really involved in the Atlantic slave trade. But of course, sugar is the primary thing mm-hmm. that is mm. being, was being produced in Jamaica and Trinidad and the the um, the British colonies in the Caribbean. And, um, and, and Scotland had a huge role mm. in that. Mm. Um, and uh, I mean, there are still. A huge number of, of sort of families that whose yeah. wealth derived from oh, sugar yeah. and slave trade. One, this is a bit a bit too late for our purposes here, but do um, you know that, for instance, one of the ways that people showed their support for the abolitionist movement was by boycotting sugar. So they would oh, stop hmm. taking sugar in their tea um, to to uh, in, in protest against slavery. So there you are. Hmm. Um, 
Well, no, I don't. I didn't see any of us put sugar in our tea. No, <laughs> no, 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 very good. Right? <laughs> exactly. I think what I what I've read is that in the early days, everybody did mm. that. Um, you, tea, you, tea and sugar, sort of, and coffee, I suppose, all sort of came in at the same time. Mm. And both tea and coffee are quite bitter drinks, and so people put sugar in to to improve the taste. Mm. And then for a century, that you were drinking. Uh, drinking um, those two things with sugar and in fact that was the main thing that sugar was imported for in such quantities I'm going, going to go off on a little tangent now no, but it's just, just occurred to me in subject of sort of tea being very fashionable and people playing around with it because it was a new drink in the 18th century or not new but it, it, was, it, was, it was very fashionable and there are several records sort of going in terms of um, historical recipes um, in which people do really bizarre things with tea so if you heard of tea cordial no. no. Ah, it's where you mix tea with white wine. Oh my gosh. Um, and drink it warm. I think we should try this out. So I yeah. made it. What we... It's on my blog. Is it delicious? It. No. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, one of the other things that allegedly happened, which I've been meaning to go and dig up a bit more and actually try making, is something called Twist, which was apparently very fashionable in coffee houses, which was half tea and half coffee. Mm. So people did some really quite creative things when it first came in as well, because mm. they, they're playing about with something creative. Creative is not all. Good. It's not not no. always good. I mean, tea cuddle <laughs> was very strange. I suppose all of these things were creative in some senses, weren't they? That mm. um, what we there's, what we have now is only by the result of a lot of trial and error. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if we were to do an episode on the history of chocolate, you would certainly find that <laughs> it took ages for anybody to invent solid chocolate that was actually edible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, um, we anyway, we should plug your um, your historic. Uh, food blog is that what it is it is yes i basically i try out recipes um uh and then you know uh, historic recipes and then talk about how easy they are to make and, and what my opinions are on them essentially <laughs> very very kate we'll, um, um, we'll, in, we'll include a link to that in the outro cabbages and kings and kate yeah <laughs> uh so uh yeah um well you know, Anna, this has been uh, fascinating. Really, uh, really good discussion uh, on the on the history of, of tea and some things about tea drinking. I've I've learned a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, as we've said, uh, listeners, if you do want to to uh, to hear about um, hear a bit more about the the history of tea uh, and and see some of the props that we've been using today, you can do so on the tour at Gladstone's Land oh, and um, part of the self guided visit as well. Yeah. So we've just got yes. some samples you can come and smell and um, learn a bit more about. Yes, it. that's a very tactile part of mm-hmm. the tour, so I would really recommend that. And um, indeed, obviously, we sell the tea in the shop too. So <laughs> really good. Um, Anna, this has been great. Thank, Thank you very you. much for coming been really back fun. on. Thanks a lot. And so we're uh, delighted now to be back again with Holly, our resident... <laughs> Becoming a regular, Holly. Our, uh, I am. Our costume and dress expert. Uh, we've just heard a little bit about the beginnings of the Georgian influence in uh, Edinburgh. And yes. uh, we've... We've had a very good discussion about uh, the, the 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 tea ceremony and 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 some of the things that um, some of the um, some of the trends that started to come in in the Georgian period. But let's hear a little bit about some of the fashions. So we've we've talked about this tea ceremony. What would the wealth, because particularly wealthy women in the, in this mm. instance, what would they have been wearing while they were drinking their expensive tea? 
Well, there was a new type of fashion um, for women that came in at the end of the 1600s called a mantua. So some... It's... <laughs> It's difficult to explain. You put it on like a jacket. Uh, it's a full-length dress um, with sleeves. It fastens at the front with a stomacher. So that What's is... A stomacher, just for our listeners? Yes. <laughs> and, I, I was... uh, and, and, and me. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a stomacher is mo- normally a triangular piece that goes onto the front of... So your clothes to cover the opening. It's it? stiffened, and it, it sort of laces boned, in. Um, often very elaborately decorated, because this mantua doesn't close the whole way. You've got a big section in the middle where you can see your stays or corset as they become underneath. So you need to cover them up somehow, and you would put your stomacher on. So that's just a big decorated piece of fabric stiffened to cover. And then that opening you there. Have a fancy underskirt as well, where the yes. skirt didn't meet at the bottom. Yes, in the late 1600s, they had very elaborately decorated underskirts. Um, so they had most of the decoration, or they didn't actually, they had decoration everywhere. It was lots of horizontal stripes, and the skirt of the mantua would be lifted up and gathered around um, around the hips to show off this decorative skirt underneath. Uh, like, a, like a bustle, you've got lots of fabric behind you um, moving around. But the, the silhouette goes from being quite wide with wide sleeves in the time of Charles II to becoming very narrow with long, narrow skirts, very tall headdresses at that point as well. And then as we move into the 1700s, the mantua develops slightly. So the skirts change shape, but the mantua changes as they well. They pleating them up in different designs, don't they? Is that right? They, uh, they have them down quite a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they, they get different designs. So they have the pleated backs, which are very popular. Um, there are some really great ones that women would wear for travelling that are just so big, completely shapeless, over their massive, uh, their massive... Um, panniers? Panniers. That... <laughs> that was the word I had. I was trying to think of a different Holly way is, of is, describing is, uh, frantically them. waving her hands around in a, in a pannier shape, <laughs> which was a frame that sat under your a skirts frame. to uh, hold them in the right shape. Yes. Um, so it would, it would cover the panniers, it would be pleated, box pleated at the back, um, so it would just hang down, it would close completely at the front, it would be like wearing a bag. And the sleeves as well, they were bell-shaped, so they went out as well, and it would just be so comfortable. It would be fitted inside, L- but great like for travelling. An 18th century uh, like onesie or something. Oh, almost, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but for more formal occasions, they would be, they would be more more fitted um but a bell-shaped skirt was very popular in 1719 and i have my research with me again (laughs) um and we've come on to the domestic annals of scotland volume three uh which is where i got some of this next stuff from but there was a pamphlet uh by robert kerr in 1719 the pamphlet. Uh, don't hold your breath for this, it's quite long. It was called 
A short and true description of the great encumbrances and damages that city and country is like to sustain by women's girded tails if it not be speedily prevented, together with a dedication to those that wear them. So he wrote a whole book about his he, views on women's fashion. He did. Um, he says that men a were... A short book. <laughs> a short book. Um, he says that they were put to a difficulty how to walk the streets from the hazard of breaking their shin bones um, against the metal hoops that women were wearing um, and uh, he says that if a man were upon the greatest express that can be if you shall meet them in any straight stair or entry you cannot pass them by without being stopped and called impertinent to boot so you can't get past them the closest in Edinburgh are so narrow women's skirts are so big men are getting stopped and can't get past the women because they're taking up so much space so, so that's really his concern isn't it he's not it worried is. about the women breaking their shins so much as the fact that he can't get inconveniences past. him yeah, yeah but he he wants their, them to alter the staircases he wants lights to be put in <laughs> so you can see when the women are coming so you're not getting stopped by them. Um, He says that they're going to have to change the designs of churches to make them bigger to accommodate the massive skirts that women are wearing. sounds very familiar. You get all of these same criticisms cropping up again in the the 19th century when these shapes come back in with the crinoline, but even bigger. There are always criticisms oh, of I mean, women's, yes. women's fashion, fashion absolutely. And I suppose this is a very good example of one of the reasons why they... It was in this period that they really started to decide that they'd had enough of these closes. Um, and it's, it's in the early yes. 18th century that um, work was done to build the North Bridge across to the... Uh, uh, across to the, the new town, which was just mm-hmm. beginning to to spring up apart from anything else because they they just had got fed up of wandering walking down the close every time they wanted to get off the royal mile yes um you've got um yeah uh, probably did have some huge hoop skirts (laughs) to thank for the north bridge (laughs) of course it's funny that by the time we get to the new town the silhouettes have just shrunk completely and they're (laughs) very (laughs) very narrow um, so they don't need the big space, but yeah, it may well be part of the reason that they wanted that extra space. I was just going to ask about the sort of fabric. So we've talked about the shapes. Mm. Um, have the fabrics changed? Because obviously in the 1600s, we've mentioned some of these um, sort of embroidery being um, and, and tab designs and things. Is, yes. Has that changed into the 18th century? I don't think it has changed much. Um, so it doesn't really... It doesn't. I haven't really found an awful lot. There are more foreign fabrics coming in at this point, though. So there's even more trade in the 1700s. So we're getting fabrics from America. Lots of cottons are coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, fabrics from India, cottons from there. Uh, so lots of cotton coming in. They're still wearing lots of linen because it's a, a local um, a local fabric. Lots of silks. Um, lots of different things. Paisley in Scotland is uh, famed for their fabric so women are wearing big paisley shawls made in paisley yes they're very fashionable aren't they they are so they're using local fabrics and foreign fabrics as well so imported Mm. things um, and 
things from lots of different places. And then, places. again, obviously that's dependent on wealth. You're buying the imported goods if you've got the money to do it, and obviously you're shopping locally if, if you don't. Exactly, yeah. I suppose that ties in quite nicely with the fact that at this time people were also consuming uh, foreign products in much more, you know, yes. tea, for instance, and sugar and coffee and so on. And um, and yes, all coming from the same places as the fabrics. Delft yeah. and things like that are all coming in as well. So it Yeah, lots of... of a big mm-hmm. influx of things from different places. So I suppose they're getting a little bit more exotic in some of the things that the paps they're using. Yes, yes. Pineapples become incredibly popular. <laughs> um, people in the late 1800s, 18, 18th century started making reticules or handbags oh, in the shape of they pineapples. Are incredible. Oh. So handbags... Going to take a very slight detour down. Yeah, I was going to ask um, about handbags. So pockets, pockets are one of my pet subjects. Oh, I think they're fascinating. Love a good pocket. Um, so pockets first come in um, in the 17th century, towards the end of the 17th century, and they are literally bags that you wear under your skirt, and you have a slit in your skirt to put your hand in. Mm. Um, but so feeding off that, the mantua helps with that because it's open at so the you front. Can... You can move it back and get in through the side to Um, get to your pockets. And because your skirts are quite big, you can keep all sorts in your pockets. Huge amounts. Some people have two. You can keep your snack in there. You can keep your valuables. You find lists of the sort of incredible things people are keeping in their pockets. Um, But of course, when you get towards the end of the 18th century, um, as Holly mentioned, silhouettes dramatically slim down and you don't, how it spoils the line of your dress if you've got a huge amount of things in your pocket under your dress. Um, so that's when handbags first come in, these reticules, um, because people need somewhere, well, women yep. need somewhere to carry their essentials. What sort of essentials would a uh, 18th century uh, John Teal woman have carried? Handkerchief, a fan, probably, um, keys. Lots of ladies of households used to keep the keys to the house Um, especially if they couldn't afford to have a housekeeper or a head butler the woman would be in charge of running the household so she would have keys to the house Um, maybe a pair of gloves maybe scissors often they often kept little like sets of um, sort of household objects yep Um, and spare pins probably as well most of they didn't really have many fastenings on their clothes things were mostly Mm. just pinned onto their onto their stays Uh, so if they lost a pin they could replace it and actually um taking a quick jump back to um tudor times men's (laughs) cod pieces um it was often quite common for men to keep pins in their cod pieces like a giant so if, pin cushion like a giant pin cushion that's incredible so if a woman uh, happened to lose a pin somewhere he could <laughs> come to the rescue into their crotch and area and produced one <laughs> this is my favorite them. fact of today right well i think on that uh, on that bombshell we better draw this bit to a close unless there's uh, anything else that you feel the listeners need to know about uh, Scottish Georgian dress? I, I don't think so. Thank you very much, Holly. Thank you for having me. Anna's still here with us for the uh, for the the ending segment because we're going to briefly talk about National Trust for Scotland membership. 
Isn't that right? Yeah. Well, I think what's really important is if you do enjoy listening to the podcasts and you enjoy listening to sort of the historical information, um, the best way to find out more is to visit the properties. And the most economically viable way is to uh, is to buy a membership. And you can do that from as little as £4 a month. And all of the money goes to protecting Scotland's built and natural heritage. Um, so you can feel great while you're enjoying a nice day out Going well. to good properties. Well, mm. and, and parks and gardens. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, some beautiful areas of coastline. It looks after sort of um, endangered species, and it's it's a it's a great uh, great charity. And um, I don't just say that because I work for it. (laughs) No, there are there are dozens of of properties all over Scotland. Actually, wherever you live, um, there are exciting places to go. And um, and and it also gives you reciprocal membership to the National Trust in England, uh, Wales, and Ireland, and indeed um, throughout America, the world as well. Australia, yeah. Zimbabwe, anywhere basically. Um, um, there you go. Really, just uh, just a little um, plug, I suppose. Little, yeah. Because, because we, yeah, we are. You we know. can't do this um, without the people who are already members, the visitors that we get mm-hmm. every year, mm-hmm. um, and that gives you know, that gives us an opportunity to do things like this, which is really exciting. And obviously you should definitely visit Gladstone's Land because uh, we're, we're a great property, but there are all sorts of other great properties too. There are, there are fantastic properties. I mean, if you enjoy sort of mercantile history, uh, Curious up in Fife is a great one to visit. Um, uh, but there's all just, just amazing properties across Scotland. In, in Edinburgh, we've got... Um, the, we, we've talked a lot about the Georgian house yeah. as well, um, but also in in Glasgow there are three or four um, classic houses that are all worth a visit. Yeah, and they um, range from the small to the big as well. You've got the tenement house, which is just an apartment, and then you've mm-hmm. got Pollock House, which is sort of huge, grand house. So they're great variations. Haven't been yet, but I'm planning a visit. At some point, I'm going to go and you know work around the. Glasgow properties. So, yes. So there you go. Just a just a little um, a little uh, membership push mm-hmm. here. We the National Trust can only do what it does with uh, with, with the you. support of of <laughs> listeners uh, and, uh, and and members like you. So uh, if you're not already a National Trust member, please do uh, <laughs> consider it. Um, next time we are very excited to be continuing our gastronomic mm-hmm. uh, consumer products theme. Um, this time we did tea, and next uh, next episode we're going to be talking about food, um, talking about some of the things that people ate in the 17th and 18th and century how that changed Scotland. And how it differed between classes. Um, so we're very much looking forward to that. Um, if you have any questions, if you have an uh, something you'd like to ask one of us uh, or something you'd like to be read out on the podcast or there's something you particularly like, you have any comments, do please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. The email address is... Gladstonsland at nts.org.uk um, So we, we love to hear from you. And, and as we've always said before, Gladstonsland is also on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and so please do do get in touch uh, if there's anything you would like to say. Mm-hmm. I think that's about it. Yes. So uh, from me, Thomas, and me, Kate, and me, Anna, uh, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> You've been listening to the Gladstones Land podcast with me, Thomas Ware, and my co-host Kate Stevenson. It was produced by me with support from the National Trust for Scotland. 
Our guests this week were Anna Brierton and Holly Black, and you heard a clip from Evelyn's tour of Gladstone's Land. You can find a link to Kate's blog on the history of food and costume in the show notes of this episode. Our music is Apollinaris in Clickty by Animali Stabile, performed by the Tudor Consort and licensed under Creative Commons. Please remember to rate, review and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and also to pass the pod if you know someone else who you think would like to listen. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.